0: So, we are finally coming to the end of our series called Viral. We have gone three months in this series. Can you believe that? That's the longest I've ever been disciplined enough to stick with a a teaching series. So, we started the first Saturday of August, and here we are the last Saturday of October. That's three months, right, according to my calculations? So just by way of review, some interesting information that I just came across this week again in an article that was published by the Pew Research Forum. Ever heard of the Pew Research Forum? They do a lot of studies, research based on people's religious inclinations and other topics as well. But there is this headline that read, In U.S., decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. And what they have determined is that the religious landscape of the United States continues to change at a rapid clip in Pew Research Center telephone surveys conducted in 2018 and 2019. 65% of American adults Describes describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion down, check this out, 12 percentage points over the past decade. Meanwhile, the religiously unaffiliated share of the population consisting of people who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, now stands at 26%, which is up from 17% over the last decade. So, A decline is happening in the United States when it comes to religious interest and participation. You perhaps have heard this statistic that we have shared before. Check this out. Here are the bottom 10 states in America when it comes to church attendance. Check out Vermont, 17%. New Hampshire, 20%. Maine, 20%. Now, the highest... Guess what the highest state is, by the way? Any guesses? Alabama, Alabama, close. Borders Alabama. Mississippi. Mississippi, the highest rate of church attendance. But here, especially in the northeastern United States, in New England, we have the lowest rates of church attendance in America. 17%, 20%, 20% here in Maine. So one out of every five people are going to a church on any given weekend, which is just staggering compared to what you would have noticed maybe 50 years ago. More broadly speaking, we've touched a little bit upon upon this around the world. See if you can pick up here. Uh, There are countries, actually, these countries in South America were very surprising to me, Uruguay and Chile. I didn't realize that they were so... Secular, But this is when it comes to weekly worship attendance. And I believe this is just simply Christian worship. But as you can see, the highest rates are in Africa. Uh, Some of our brothers and sisters here from Kenya can attest to that, I'm sure. The lowest rate, not surprisingly, is China at just 1%. And then you see Europe. Our dear friend here from Germany can probably attest to this as well. Uh, people from Sweden, 6%, only 6% attend. And we have Norway, 7%, the United Kingdom, 8%, Germany, 10%. So we see in places that are more developed, what people call the global north right now, that people are becoming less and less interested in religion and, and church attendance. People are going away from what they deem to be of religious nature. And so our trend here in the United States is kind of like here in Maine and, and New Hampshire and Vermont and Massachusetts. We are moving more closely towards that European type of approach to religion. And so it, it begs the question, how can this passage be true? This is taken from the book of Habakkuk. When's the last time you read from Habakkuk? Habakkuk chapter 2, this proposal is put out there that there will come a day where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will come a time, this is saying, this is proposing. And we have looked at it from the last book of the Bible as well, the book of Revelation, where it said that there would come a time when the earth would be saturated with the knowledge of God, where the earth would be saturated with the glory of God, that indeed the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, I don't know exactly how that works, but seas usually have water by definition, right? And so it's like this is saturative. This is this is a... a a huge movement of God's glory, his love, His the knowledge of him. And we've been looking throughout this teaching series, finally now coming to the end. This is, I think, teaching number 12, where we are putting a little kind of cherry on top and bringing it all to a grand conclusion, all right? You have probably been waiting for this moment when it would finally end this whole series. I'm being facetious, of course. But... There is this one other passage in the book of Revelation that has me intrigued. And it's taken from the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. Some of you have a paper Bible. I will put the words up on the screen. And we will not linger too long besides this point, this idea. But Revelation chapter, look at this. I deleted that slide, I thought. Uh, that was from the previous week. But Revelation chapter 12, and we begin in verse 10. This is, now there's lots of different views on the book of Revelation, and we could spend a whole lifetime unpacking what they all mean and all that, and there's a lot of mystery that surrounds it, and and we don't want to go in too dogmatically as to what it might mean. We want to have a humble spirit, but nevertheless, this particular part seems to be pretty straightforward. The author of the book, John, he says, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, his Messiah have come for the accuser of our brethren now, in scripture, it's very clear who the accuser of our brethren is. According to the Bible, this is speaking of the devil or Satan. He is known as somebody who accuses God's people. And he, he works extra hard to bring discouragement and shame and guilt to our consciousness. And so he says, the accuser of our brethren, this is looking forward to a time the accuser of our brethren who accuse them, that is God's people, before our God day and night has been cast down. Just the other night, just so precious, having a good conversation with my little, two little girls, Acadia and Winslow, and very thoughtfully, you know, kids have the best questions, theological questions, the best questions about God. Have you noticed that? But, uh... Uh, a little Winnie, you know, five-year-old Winnie, she says to me, Daddy, 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 why would God have created Satan if he is so bad? And that's a very good question, isn't it? And we don't have time to unpack that. That's a, that's a deep question. But uh, bless her heart, Acadia, she goes, oh, no, no, Winnie, Winnie. You have to remember, you have to remember that, that, that Satan used to be a good angel, But then, at that point, he was known as Lucifer, and then he became wicked, and he became known as Satan. So God did not create Satan to be this way, it's just the way he turned, because he turned to himself rather than God. And so, we know, as we look around the world, that there is tragedy and evil and, and, and pain and suffering, but there will come a time, according to the narrative of Scripture, when that Pain and suffering and, and, and evil will be brought to an end. Now notice what is part of that process, part of this reality, is the book of uh, Revelation goes on to explain, and this is speaking now of those who are honest of heart and, and, and getting heart to heart with God. It says, and they overcame him, that is the devil figure, they overcame him, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. This is a powerful idea. And they did not love their lives to the death. Now there's three ingredients here that we're just going to break down a little bit. Just pause beside very briefly. I want us to, to notice closely those three elements of those who are experiencing this power at this time when there is so much pain and tragedy in the world, at this time when, when people are starting to become more and more polarized, we've talked about that, that people who are, who are getting heart-to-heart heart with God are experiencing these three things. Number one, notice what it says, the spread of viral Christianity. That's what I've labeled it. Viral Christianity has three ingredients, kind of summing up a lot of what we've talked about. Number one, they are living by the blood of the lamb. Now that's a kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? The blood of the lamb. All this is simply saying is these people are living by the love of God. They are experiencing cleansing in their own hearts and in their own minds and in their own experiences because they have encountered the power of God's love as we see on the cross of Jesus Christ. We see by the sacrifice of Jesus. I was having a conversation, this is last week as well, with one of my Jewish friends, and he was remarking to me how he believed that God is waiting for humanity to help perfect his creation. And so it is our task as humans, and especially The Jewish mindset is thinking especially Jews are given this task of helping to perfect creation. And I said, you know, I can get on board with that idea. I said, however, human beings also need an outside source in order to empower us to participate in this act of perfecting the world. And what I mean by that, what he heard me saying was, oh, what you're saying is just God has to do it all. I said, no, 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 no. But what I am saying is that we can only achieve this as we are motivated and compelled by this outside revelation of God's love. So human beings, we are not naturally predisposed to wanting to think outside of our own well being We are naturally, as I've observed in my own heart and maybe in the hearts of others and certainly in the hearts of my children, we are naturally self-centered. We are naturally inward focused. But we can, as the grace of God, and as we experience, and as we look at the, the story of Jesus' death for us, by the blood of the Lamb, you and I can have our hearts turned outward as we appreciate and we, we, we have gratitude for what he has done for us. Now, the second one that I'm captivated by that I think is really interesting is that they overcame by the word of their testimony the word of their testimony. That's one of the reasons why we have stories that we like to share. We like to practice telling our stories. That's what a testimony is. It's kind of an old-fashioned Christian way of saying story. But that's what we do when we're sharing our stories. We are giving testimony, we are sharing from our own experience the truth about what God has done in our lives, in our experience. We're testifying to how our story aligns with God's story. We're testifying to how we have been changed by his grace. We're testifying to how, you know what, we don't have it all figured out, but that's okay because we have a God who has it all figured out and we can trust in him. I like what you said, Paul, that God is proving himself to be more trustworthy. Will I trust that God is faithful? Will I trust that he is good? Will I be willing to hand the reins over to him? You know, when we tell our stories as well, the shame and the guilt and the things that that trouble us, they lose more and more of their power. I'm thinking of And um, perhaps some of you have read some of Brene Brown's works. She talks about how when we share our stories with other people, it has the power to to, to loosen the, the chains of the shame that ensnare us. And so as you've probably heard before, shame thrives in secrecy. And so we find people that we can share our stories with and they have less power over us as we share those things. I remember uh, this powerful statement and I've shared a little bit in the past with you about this young lady named Nadia Murad. She was uh, part of the Yezidi people in Iraq and ISIS came in and took all of the women and small children, and they took them into slavery, and they killed all the men. This is, I know, a very tragic story, but they would take the women, and they would do unmentionable things to them, and some of them, by God's grace, were able to to break free, and they had people who would come, and they they would rescue them, and so she was one of those young ladies that was fortunately rescued, and she went on to have her story be broadcast throughout the world, and articles written about her, and she wrote a book, and she actually won the Nobel Peace Prize a couple of years ago, and I read her book called The Last Child, and in the very last couple pages of her book, she shared this very, very powerful statement that I thought was really interesting, and it intersects with this idea. She noted this. Check this out. She said, every time I tell my story, I feel that I am taking some power away from the terrorists. My story told honestly and matter-of-factly is the best weapon I have against terrorism. She was speaking specifically of ISIS. And so she said even though it's painful to share her story, she knows that it's necessary to take a little more power away from those who were her oppressors. If that's true on the human plane, how true of it? How, how much more true would it be for us as we declare our story, and as the evil one tries to keep his grips on us? We share our story in a way that 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 acknowledges the, the experience we've had, the pain we've had, the shame we've experienced. It it loses its power over us more and more. And I was reminded of this again this week. Ellie shared a a, a podcast with me that was Oprah's podcast. Maybe some of you have heard of Oprah. Anybody ever heard of Oprah Winfrey? But she was, she was interviewing a gentleman by the name of William Paul Young. Anyone ever heard of William Paul Young? He wrote the book, a bestseller, called The Shack. And he details in this podcast his own journey. And He was, unfortunately, I'm sharing really tragic stories this morning, but he was the son of a missionary family, and they went over to Papua New Guinea, and he went away when he was like six years old to a boarding school, and unfortunately, he became very quickly abused by other students and presumably teachers as well. And throughout his life, he struggled with shame and other addictions, and eventually it came to the point where he... uh, was having an affair with his wife's best friend, and his wife found out, and she said to him, I want to hear all the details. And he said, all the details? And she said, yes. Well, little did she know that it would take four days for him to share his whole story to her. But he said, you know what? There was nothing more liberating, nothing more liberating than than sharing my story and the reality of my shame and my guilt and all of my... My sin and my struggle. And eventually, through that whole experience, 11 years of healing, it took him and his wife. Eventually, uh, he actually came to the place as well where he just put it all on the line for God, and he didn't want God to bail him out because he was going through some financial struggles. And he actually told his friends, his closest friends, he said, I'm going to... I'm going to be uh, in a financial struggle here. I do not want you to bail me out. Do not. I know you'll be tempted to do so. Don't, Don't bail me out. And so what was it? His house, he lost his house. He lost everything. He lost all his possessions. And he needed something to give to his children for Christmas that year because he had no money to really buy them anything. And he said, you know what? I'm going to write them a story. And he sat down. And he started writing this book, the story that turned into the Shack. He made 15 copies of it at like Staples or somewhere, and then all of a sudden it went viral. And there's these millions upon millions upon millions of copies sold through this one little act. Because he had no money, he was going to give it to his children for Christmas. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you've ever read the Shack or seen the movie. I Mention it from time to time. It's one of the most powerful allegories about who God is and his love. But his story, he was willing to share his story. And then lastly, we're going to wind down here, but lastly, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and it says they loved not their lives to the death. That is, they were living lives. Here you get a little typo here because I didn't save the right. File from this, but they lived lives of self-sacrifice. Lives of self-sacrifice. I was reminded of this quote just last night as I was thinking about what we would look at this morning. This is from a book called *The Desire of Ages*. It is so incredible. The author Ellen White says, "Our influence upon others." depends not so much upon what we say as upon what we are she says men presumably and women may combat and defy our logic they may resist our appeals but a life of disinterested love is an argument they cannot gainsay in other words they can't they can't refute it she says, a consistent life characterized by the meekness of Christ is a power in the world. And I'm just feeling more convicted in my own heart and life. How can I go to an even greater degree of love for others? How can I not be so concerned with my own well-being? How can I empty myself of pride and arrogance? How can I empty myself of selfishness? How can I allow the spirit to work in and through me to such a degree that people, when they encounter me, experience an unmerited, unconditional love? I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life. Have you ever experienced that where people you just knew that they genuinely, honestly, completely cared about your well-being even more than their own well-being. It's not very common, is it? I'm I'm searching my own heart and my own mind, and of course, I have a beautiful wife. Beyond that, though, beyond that, I see it in you guys for sure. But even, even us here, we're supposed to be the loving people. We have our moments, don't we? And so how can I be? I don't know, I don't, I don't know if I should expect it from, from people, but how can I be that person? How can I just envelop people in this embrace that shows them that they are valuable and that they are important? And I'm not, I'm not friends with them for what they can do for me. I'm not friends with them so that they can join up with, my religion, or I'm not friends with them so that they can believe what I believe, or, or I'm not friends with them be, so that they can do what I want them to do. And I can recognize in my own heart that I can gravitate very much to people who have it all kind of, they're kind of like not messy, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I can love the clean people, I can love the people that kind of are of the same socioeconomic and educational background as me. But how can I be a loving, embracing person to those who don't look like me, talk like me, act like me, think like me, dress like me, believe like me? I want to go the extra mile by his grace. And so this is what this is what it's gonna look like. This is what it's gonna look like. Even though Christianity, this Jesus thing seems like it's kind of like a, on the outs around the world. Now, I know some people would say, well, that's not true. There's still 65% of people in America believe in God on some level. But even though it does look like it's kind of falling on tough times, it's not going to be through us putting on, and I sound like a broken record here, but it's not going to be through us putting on a better program in our building and trying to get people to come and say, ah, come on. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be us by God's grace as we embrace and are embraced by the love of Jesus. It's going to be us as we just are unashamed to share our stories. And it's going to be by us living lives of, did you notice that phrase she used? Let me go back to it. I think we lost it. It's this two-word phrase, disinterested love. What does that mean? disinterested love. It's love without agenda. It's allowing God's love to flow through us so that others might feel like they're not a project or they're not some end that others are having an agenda for. And so you and I, by his grace, can be the hands and feet of Jesus as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us.